whatever I'm doing for work or whatever I'm doing in my life, I am who I am. Like I live a very unique lifestyle. I work remotely from Mexico most of the time. Sometimes I go to Toronto. Like and having the the guts to just like be who I am and not you know hide that when I'm working uh, with a company. I think it's important to work with other people that are also who they are authentically. It's just like whoever you are, at the end of the day, if you are not who you authentically are at work, that's where you spend most of your time. And I don't think that's a sustainable way of living and it's gonna end up in an unhappy employee. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artist of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artist of Data Science and on Twitter at Artists of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artists of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. guest today is a mathematician and data scientist who loves dancing, cooking, and adventure. She earned a bachelor's degree as well as a master's degree in mathematics, both from the University of Guelph, where her research focused on applying evolutionary algorithms to epidemiology problems. During her time at the University of Guelph, she published three articles, including an award-winning paper on evolutionary computation. As an experienced data scientist, she's adept at collecting, analyzing, and interpreting large data sets. She's most passionate about using her skills to make a positive impact, improve people's well-being, create sustainable abundance, and decrease our carbon footprint by spreading awareness on sustainability. Throughout her career, she found interesting ways to combine her interest in healthcare and data science by working in organizations such as Figure One, a case-sharing network for healthcare professionals, where she founded the data department, and she's currently at Food Maestro, where she uses data to tell stories, build recommendations, and dive into products and trends to help her clients innovate and make smarter decisions. So please, help me in welcoming our guest today, the founder of Toronto. Toronto's Women's Data Group, a network for women that is shaping a data culture in Toronto, Lisa Schiller. Lisa, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. So talk to me a bit about your path into data science. What sparked your interest? Where did you start? And how did you get to where you are today? Well, my path into data science really just comes from a love of mathematics, which I've had since I was in grade six. (laughs) I just really dove into math uh, in my studies and becoming a data scientist uh, seems like the natural progression for me because what do you do in industry? when you have lots of data, you apply lots of math to it. So um, my journey just kind of flowed from passion and interest. I love that. I love that. Um, Because you kind of develop that passion through working on something for a long enough time that it just becomes kind of your, your craft, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, in university, the algorithms I was actually working with were data science algorithms before there was actually a term data scientist. And so when I went into industry, I just naturally started applying mathematical algorithms to data and then boom, I became a data scientist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I was coming up, it was just called statistics. So talk to us about the work you're doing at Food Maestro. How are you applying data science to help deliver a better food experience? So at Food Maestro, we have pretty much all the data on food products in Canada and the UK. And that includes, you know, the ingredient list, includes all the labels. Every text that you see on a food product is data that we have. What's layered on top of that are algorithms that can parse out, you know, these food products are for 
you know, suitable for vegans because they don't have any animal products in it. Or, you know, these other products are suitable for someone that has a tree nut allergy. And instead of having a customer read through all the ingredients, we have algorithms that just do all that for you. So that's one aspect of uh, what I'm doing at Food Maestro. Another is creating products for category managers, which are the people that work at big food retailers that decide what goes in the shelves. So how do we take sales data and product data to, you know, recommend like these are the optimal products that you should be having. So it's a lot of, you know, recommendations. A third area that I'm applying a lot of data science to right now, which is a personal interest of mine, is creating a sustainability algorithm. So for every product in the UK, or almost every product in the UK, uh, I've developed an algorithm that takes in all of this data from different sources on um, these products and says, uh, and gives a score for how sustainable it is. So then it will allow, you know, food retailers and shoppers to make smarter decisions around sustainability, which is super cool in my opinion. (laughs) So that's really interesting that you say sustainability just for our audience out there who's kind of not familiar with that term or not familiar with with what is uh, meant by sustainability, would you mind uh, defining that for us? For me and my work, what sustainability means is the impact on the environment as well as the impact on workers. Because if you think about the word sustain and, and also the impact on like farms and, and like the, the ground, the farming practices, whether it's organic or GMO. Um, one piece that I think people leave out is, is the workers. I think that fair trade is really important because the word sustainability is like, if you think about it, it's like sustained practices, like practices that will, that could keep going and going and going without depleting. And if you think about that with food or your, your actions and how you live, um, it, you know, it, it doesn't just impact the environment. It's how are the workers sustained? Like, are they being paid enough or so that they can survive and be sustained as well? It's the CO2 content, um, the water usage, it's the farming practices of like organic or, or GMO. It's the packaging as well. It's, is packaging made from recycled material or is it, does it have the ability to be recycled easily? Um, so it's all of those things. That's really, really uh, interesting. So like, how do you think data science will impact clinical health, wellness, sustainability, even in, in the next two to five years? Well, we have, we have tons of data in the world. It's about making informed decisions. If I take the example of food, just because it's relevant and top of mind, if I care about sustainability and I walk into a store right now, there's no information. Like, I don't know what is sustainable and what's not. But if that information was served to me and I was able to actually see through like someone interpreting the data that this product is sustainable and healthy, (laughs) um, then I'll be able to make a better decision. And so when it comes to, when it comes to that health, like what if you had the information presented to to you super easily and then you just be able to make a decision because you have the information and it's something that you care about. And that goes for sustainability and health and not just in food, but, you know, let's say, I mean, one of the industries that's doing a really good job right now is the, you know, exercise. We have like Fitbits and all the, the technology that, you know, if I care about exercise, there's this technology that has all of my data and will be able to say like, you know, you haven't taken enough steps today. So, you know, if you care about your health, like maybe you should do more exercise or something like that. But it's all about taking the data that we have, interpreting it and allowing just like everyday people to have access to that information to make smarter, healthier decisions. In what ways do you feel we can leverage data science to help reduce our carbon footprint and promote sustainability? Again, I'm going to relate this back to food. That's the area that I have a lot of experience in. But reducing our carbon footprint when it comes to food has to do, again, with data. (laughs) It's like if I want to reduce my carbon footprint or maybe even if that's not top of mind, just having that information presented to me of like, you know, when I go in and buy food or, or make any purchase what is the carbon impact of that? Um, and then if you want to generalize it to how people live their everyday lives, a lot of it has to do with like buying local. It didn't have to travel very far to get to you. It's just about designing your life so that you don't have to commute super far. I mean, so much of our CO2 output has to do with transportation. 
So if you think about how transportation impacts every part of your life, and then you just reduce that, you're making such a big difference already. In what ways do you think data science will have a, a impact or at least the biggest positive impact on people's food choices in the next two to five years? I, I think that has to do with presenting the information to customers in an effective way. And it's hard to do that in person, like in a store, brick and mortar store, because you can't have like, I mean, I guess you could, but, <laughs> you know, having a little label of like, this is the environmental impact of this food item on the shelf. I just don't see how that would work. But shopping online, um, that, you, that information is so easily presentable and having like a data science or just, you know, some kind of algorithm in the background working, collecting data and showing this, you know, a number of like, or something to say how sustainable a product is, um, would make online purchases a lot more sustainable. And I really think that, you know, now with like coronavirus, everyone... Most people are shopping online. And I think that we've kind of passed this threshold of online shopping that, you know, the convenience of it and just how many people have adopted that behavior. I personally think it's going to stick around. So there'll be more people shopping online and then you'll have more algorithms powering the information behind the products on these websites or apps or wherever people are shopping. It's really interesting, like like a sustainability score on, on any product that you purchase that, that kind of comes up like, um, I don't want to say like, like a warning label, but almost like kind of how we have the food packaging labels that you mentioned, like, like some type of sustainability score uh, on that package. Would there have to be like some type of governing body that that regulates that if we were to go in that direction? Yeah, so right now what I'm building is being verified by organizations. I think it would be fantastic, fantastic to get to a point where maybe it's like a, you know, like how there's the FDA. It's like also, you know, there's some kind of governmental body that verifies the data behind the algorithms and the algorithm itself that's powering some kind of quote unquote sustainability score. You know, maybe we'll get to that point in a few years. I think that would be fantastic because that also means that the government is just one step further to, um, you know, being concerned about the environment and, and sharing that concern with the population. Talk to us about the project you worked on where you used math, data science to predict COVID-19 in the state of Guanajuato, Mexico. Yeah. So this was a project I was just, you know, I was sitting in my apartment in Mexico and just being very aware that the information that's shared with the population of Mexico is very little. It's very inaccurate. There's all kinds of politics about what information can be shared and what numbers are good and what numbers are bad. There's you know, so much of the Mexican like, culture <laughs> is ingrained with tourism. And so it was kind of a scary situation for Mexico. And I understand why the, the information is mostly hidden or was mostly hidden. And I've done a lot of research on epidemiology, which is the study of how disease spreads through populations. That's, you know, what all of my published papers are on. And I spent several years of my life just researching this, sitting on my couch <laughs> and playing with some numbers to try to figure out when this thing was going to hit you know, Mexico hard and, you know, when it would be over and what are the different like strategies that we could take to mitigate and just playing with those numbers. And uh, my neighbor walked in and was like, Hey, like, this is pretty cool. I think maybe you should share this information with people because we all really want to know. <laughs> so I created an algorithm that modeled uh, how COVID-19 was going to spread through the population here in the state of Guanajuato. And I published it and it just kind of blew up because <laughs> it was this information that no one really had. And I don't think there's a lot of epidemiologists in, in the state. So um, at least nobody that was kind of taking on the, the modeling, the spread. So um, that's kind of where it came from. And uh, had a really, really good impact on the society here. I mean, I, yeah, there were like newspapers and governmental bodies and everyone just like kind of really needing this information. The blog post that I had read, you talked about the, is it, is it called the SEER model? S-E-I-R. Can you break that down for us? What is that? And, and how did you kind of use that in this use case? Yeah, so an SEIR model, it stands for susceptible, exposed, infected, and recovered. 
And this is a very popular type of epidemiological model where you have a population of people and at any given time, you're in one of these four states. When it comes to coronavirus, most people start in the susceptible phase. And then as time progresses, you move into the um, exposed phase, which means you have contracted the virus, but you are not showing symptoms yet and you're not able to infect other people yet. And then the infectious stage is where you're able to infect other people and spread the disease. And then recovered is after you've had the disease, you either recover with immunity, um, meaning you cannot get the disease again, or you die. <laughs> but either way, it kind of is the same in the model. You know, there's other setups of this model, like you have SIR, which is susceptible infected recovery. You don't have that exposed phase. There's SIRS, where like recovered doesn't mean that you have immunity. So you can you move into the susceptible phase again. So that's the model that I use. Really interesting. And I think that kind of speaks to, you know, the importance of, of first of all, understanding that domain, right? Because I, I think a lot of people are just creating these really cool Tableau dashboards, these really cool visualizations or whatever in Python and posting them. I see them all over LinkedIn, but without having a real understanding of the mechanism for which a disease progresses through a population that it's kind of irresponsible to create these these type of dashboards, these models, if you don't understand that kind of underlying mechanism. So thank you for, for talking about that and you know really giving the audience something to go and research on their own so that they become more knowledgeable about these type of models. Can you talk to us about some of the key assumptions that you made and maybe even touch on the importance of having good or strong assumptions when you're undertaking a new project? You know, mathematical models are only as accurate as their inputs. <laughs> so everything relies on, on what data you're feeding it and what the assumptions are. And if you tweak those assumptions even a little bit, sometimes it can completely change the results of the model. You know, that's one of the things that I prefaced in, in sharing this information with people was the data is not totally accurate. Did my best to weed through it and figure out what the truth is, but I, I did edit the, the article in the model based on new information. But some of the assumptions that I had were, you know, the starting, first of all, it's like, yeah, like the starting uh, data. So how many people were actually infected were actually already recovered and so on. Um, so those are some of the inputs that you just have to like figure out as best as, best as you can. There's um, an infectious rate, which is the biggest one because uh, this fluctuates even a little bit and it just changes the model completely. It was deduced from a study uh, that I found that I think was the, the, given the scenario, it's the most, it's the closest thing to a scientific study that we had, but I found that infectious rate was 2.28, meaning for every person that's infected, they will pass it along to 2.28 other people on average. Um, and I, I played around with this number and said, okay, if we go into full lockdown, this is how that number will change and, and lower and, and so on. And I tried a bunch of different scenarios and presented those in the article. And there's a... Um, asymptomatic rate, which was 17% uh, that I assumed in the art, 17.9%. And this was taken from the Diamond Princess cruise ship, uh, which is kind of a scenario that's a, the closest thing to a scientific experiment, just because it was an enclosed environment and everyone that left the ship was followed and, you know, kept in isolation. So we have very good numbers on what the um, asymptomatic rate is based on that study. Oh yeah, the death rate and mortality rate, which only really matters for just if you want to split up the recovered into fully actually recovered with immunity or recovered, um, meaning like they will no longer get the disease because they unfortunately ended up as a fatality. Um, so there's that. And then, you know, I dove in a little bit more into how many hospital beds I think would be in, in Guanajuato, which I, I have no idea. <laughs> that, that's just a guess. But I, I shared that information. with 
What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free Open Mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. Can you uh, maybe speak to what you would say was like the most interesting or important finding that you got from this project? I have kind of two that I would share. One is just in terms of the data and the results. One of the things that I that I tested, which I think is very controversial, and I don't actually know if it would work. So I want to preface it with that. But the best outcome came from, in terms of, economics, because obviously if we went into full lockdown, the virus would be gone very quickly. Who knows what would happen when you'd open up again, but that is not a good economic situation for Mexico because the economics are very different than Canada and the States. Um, but so taking economics into account, the best scenario was actually isolating the people that were vulnerable and at high risk of having severe a severe case, isolating those people and then just letting the rest of the population go through life like relatively normally. The idea is so that the normal population would gain herd immunity. At that point, it would be safe for everyone else to kind of join back into society because the herd immunity will have been reached. But I don't know if this would actually work in real life. But that was very interesting to model it. <laughs> um, the other is just the reaction from the community, which I was not expecting. I thought maybe 10 friends would read this article and they'd get, you know, some, some good findings from it and it would help them kind of either ease their fear or kick them into gear. <laughs> so the reaction was, was much more than that. Like, you know, thousands of comments on, on Facebook threads and on my website, just like lots of really great discussion and, you know, governmental bodies reaching out being like, Hey, can you help us like further with this analysis? And, um, and also just individuals showing their gratitude. It was like so clear that people need information. People need to have the data interpreted and presented to them in a way that they understand it. And I was not expecting that. So that was very interesting. One last definition for us here. Can you def define what herd immunity is? Yeah. So herd immunity is when a certain percentage, and it's different for every disease, um, every infectious disease, but when there's a certain percentage of people in a population that are immune to the disease, meaning they can no longer get it, and that immunity comes through either a vaccine or a previous infection. When there's a certain percentage of people that can no longer get the disease, the trajectory of the disease is cut off. It actually stops spreading. It's unclear what percentage of the population would need to have immunity for COVID-19. It's estimated to be about 67%. But it's a range, and, and we won't really know until we have a better understanding of the disease. That's how vaccines work. Not every person in a population needs to be vaccinated in order to eradicate the disease. There just needs to be a certain percentage of people. Thank you so much for that. So kind of shifting gears here now with our questions, we've talked uh, about your project, and it, you know, definitely very scientific in the way you went about your methodology and everything. But I'm, I'm curious to see, how do you view data science? Do you view it as an art or as a science? I view it as the dance between both because the, you have to have a creative mind. When I was studying mathematics very intensely, one of the things that I realized quickly was how creative mathematics is. Everyone has this idea that it's just, you know, logical, like this means that, and this will always mean that and so on. But when you come, when it comes to proving things or designing analyses, it's a totally creative process and you need to have creativity to do that. In that sense, it's very creative. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, also scientific because there are certain rules that you need to follow in order to prove or present information in a truthful way. So definitely the dance between both. And I think that most scientific, you know, even if you look at physics, it's also very creative, but you have to like follow rules. 
So let's talk about how the creative process manifests itself in, in mathematics and in data science. Um, how, how, do you, how do you see it manifesting itself? So I'll take maybe some real uh, experiences and examples. So, you know, I'm presented with a data set. <laughs> I need to, let's say, create a recommendation algorithm based on that data set. First, it's just getting familiar with the data, looking at it, being curious about it, trying different you know, visualizations of the data. One, thing, one of the things I love doing is, I, work, I love working with Tableau, because I just plug a data set in there, play around with the different fields, and just get an idea of what the landscape of the data is. And then in that process, it's, you know, I'm discovering like how I could use this data in order to make recommendations, all different types and trying different things. And um, so it's really in that discovery phase where all the creativity happens. And then once a few light bulbs go off, it's like, okay, now I will use the rules and the scientific uh, aspects of what I know about recommendation algorithms. And I will take that creativity and feed it into those rules and then create the recommendation algorithm. You've got some awesome experience uh, building a data science practice from the ground up. What do you think are the essentials to lay the foundation on which the house of data can be built? So I'm a data scientist at at a company and I'm trying to lay the foundation of data science there. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first thing that I think is really important is actually getting familiar with the way things are set up right now and uh, coming up with a plan about how to improve that. And usually, you know, companies can be, especially startups, can be at any level of like having their data in Excel Excel spreadsheets or having it in a, you know, a SQL database. But I think getting the data to a point where, you know, it's in a database, it can be easily like analyzed, you know, plugging in SQL and Python, both are very important. So having access to data through both of those languages, that's like the technical infrastructure part. The second is creating a data science culture. Data scientists have this knowledge that of how algorithms can help. Um, Nobody else at the company usually has that knowledge. So it's important to like create a culture where people have a general understanding of what data science is and how it can help their projects or spark new projects. Having that basic culture is really important. Also going around and looking at every project and having a great understanding of what's going on and then what is important to the business (laughs) so that, you know, you can kind of, as a data scientist recommends like, oh, you're doing it this way. If you actually have an algorithm at this point in this process, it'll make this a lot more accurate or it'll make it a lot faster or whatever. So that's something that I think is really important. (laughs) It's like, you know, for creating a, a data science practice. And then actually coming up with plans with the different projects. Like a data scientist is almost this internal um, consultant. You know, if this project needs a data scientist for a little bit, then it will be grabbed in there or another project and, and so on. Um, and then also having the guts to recommend, you know, new projects where, you know, you see opportunities of, of how, it can, you know, data science can improve the process or make things faster. And then just yeah, actually having the guts to, to recommend that, you know, maybe there's new projects that start. So for someone who's the first data scientist in an organization and who wants to kind of cultivate that data science culture, what are some challenges you foresee uh, foresee them facing and maybe share some tips on how we can overcome those challenges? Yeah, so any data scientist, first data scientist at a company, like most of the challenge comes from the culture. I've had pushback before where, you know, people are doing things one way and, you know, I'm not saying that their way is wrong. It's just, I have skills that could make that process a lot easier and a lot faster, but it's difficult to go in and say, I have all the answers. What I'm doing is right. What you're doing is wrong. Like that's, that's, if you frame it like that, it's not going to go over well. So it's about culture and also just approaching things from a perspective of like, education so it's like i'm educating you on these skills that i have and i would really like to help you um 
Another is a lot of the time companies will be like, we need a data scientist because our investors say that we need a data scientist. I have no idea what a data scientist does, but we need you. <laughs> and <laughs> that can, you know, present a lot of issues because from my experience, those companies don't necessarily actually need a data scientist at that point. So kind of just sit there twiddling your thumbs for a little while before you can come up with how you can help. So I think a lot of the initial conversation should be about, okay, what are the actual needs of the company and, and how can I actually help or kind of, you know, taking on a big project, like joining a new company and not knowing exactly what to do. <laughs> so for those organizations out there that are, you know, looking to, to bring on data scientists for the first time, or maybe people out there who are looking to add data scientists, you know, to their own teams, what do you look for? Like, you know, what is it that you look for uh, in a data science candidate? And do you, you know, do you have any tips on how someone can cultivate those qualities for themselves? I think there are so many potential data scientists out there, lots of really smart people. So when it comes to the technical side, that's almost less of a concern to me because if you have someone that's really smart, you can teach them. You can teach them Python or you can teach them SQL. Um, it's really about that creative side that I was talking about where you can look at a problem and creatively solve it, um, coming up with solutions that aren't, you know, they don't fit in a square box. Like you, you have that ability in your brain to, to think outside of that box. That's probably the most important thing. And the other is on a personal note, I think, you know, whatever I'm doing for work or whatever I'm doing in my life, I am who I am. Like I live a very unique lifestyle. I work remotely from Mexico most of the time. Sometimes I go to Toronto, like, and, and having the, the guts to just like be who I am and not kind of, you know, hide that when I'm working uh, with a company. And, uh, you know, if I want to show up to work wearing like a neon, you know, bright pink t-shirt, like that's just who I am. And I think it's important to, you know, work with other people that are also who they are authentically. And it's not to say that like everyone's gonna want to wear bright pink t-shirts, but, it's just like whoever you are, I, I try to find that authentic um, person when looking at candidates because at the end of the day, if you are not who you authentically are at work, that's where you spend most of your time. And I don't think that's a sustainable way of living and it's going to end up in an unhappy employee. I absolutely love that. Just don't, don't live up to or don't try to be what you think a data scientist should be like. Just be yourself as a data scientist. Exactly. And you're going to be so much happier too. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone around you will be happier as well. So. Yeah. Absolutely love it. So we talked a little bit about some of these, um, you mentioned, you know, non-technical skills that are really important, but I think a lot of up and coming data scientists, they tend to focus primarily on these hard technical skills and they think that that's really what's going to separate them from the rest of the crowd. And, you know, you've touched on this a little bit already, so sorry if it's uh, kind of going to be repetitive here, but what are some of these soft skills that candidates are, are missing that are really going to separate them from their competition? Yeah, for sure. One of the most important soft skills is the ability to take a complex thought or process and explain that in a very simplified way that anybody can understand. As a data scientist, you have all this technical knowledge and everything's you know complicated in your brain and convoluted and you're solving these problems with like data and math. And then how do you actually explain that to the CEO of the company or the project manager. These people usually don't have the same technical knowledge that you have, but that's why they hired you. <laughs> so it's about being able to explain that to those people. And, you know, also a lot of the time I work with external clients. So I'm, you know, explaining how I came up with an algorithm that recommends products um, I'm not going to tell them how the entire algorithm works. I'm just going to have to know what pieces will matter to them for them to wrap their brain around what's happening. Um, so that's a really important skill. Data visualization skills. I think it's kind of between the technical and non-technical skills because you have to have the creativity and the eye to make a visualization that explains the data in the best way possible. The ability to, and this is a tricky one, the ability to work alone and with a team 
because, and I think this goes for a lot of engineers as well, but a lot of what I do is me just sitting at my computer and focusing very intensely by myself. <laughs> and then a lot of it is also working with the team about the results that I'm creating and, you know, the needs of the company, being able to flow between those two, you know, usually with people, one or the other comes naturally for data science. I think you got, you got to have both. So do you have any tips for, for data scientists who maybe find themselves in a room full of executives or maybe uh, stakeholders that aren't so technical or external clients? Do you have any tips for them on how they can clearly communicate their ideas, their technical concepts without completely losing their audience? I, I don't want to like make it sound like I'm calling the executives dumb because that's not what I'm doing. But what I'm recommending is talk to them like you're talking to a two-year-old. Maybe not a two-year-old, maybe like an eight-year-old. <laughs> so, and, and that's because you have to assume that they don't have any of that technical knowledge. So just pretend you're talking to like your eight-year-old niece and you're explaining these concepts to them. And I think that's how you would get the information across very effectively. Also, just have that perspective of they're looking to you for answers. They're looking to you. They, you're there because you have skills that they don't have most of the time. Just have that knowledge there where have the confidence. <laughs> so we, we talked a little bit about working on a team and in a team environment. And I'm just curious, like if you have any tips for data scientists who are in a team environment, but they might be scared of looking like they don't know something, um, but they don't want to openly communicate that with their team. I used to struggle with this one a lot because when I would work at companies, I would be the expert and I don't know every single algorithm. I'm, you know, Googling things kind of, you know, a lot of the time where I'm just like, okay, I think I know the general idea of how to solve this problem, but like I need an algorithm that does this and this and that, and then you Google it and you figure it out and maybe look on a bunch of forums to see who's done it before. And that's okay. <laughs> it's like, you are not, it's just, just knowing that you are not expected to know every single thing, but you have the skills to be able to interpret and learn um, and communicating that also. Like I one day just had this epiphany where I'm like, I'm not expected to know all these things and it's okay. And I can share that. And the people that I work with know that now they, it's like, and I'll say, I, I know how generally I want to solve this problem. I don't know what algorithm I want to use yet and I don't know exactly how it's going to look, but I'll figure it out. And just framing things like that, where it's like, I don't know everything right now, but I will figure it out. And that's totally okay. <laughs> I don't know why I used to think that's not, that wasn't okay, <laughs> but it's okay. I absolutely love that. And I think that's, probably the most liberating epiphany I've ever had is the fact that actually, hey, nobody really expects me to know everything. And I don't have to pretend like I know everything. It's okay to be like, you know what? I don't know right now, but I can go find that out. I've got, you know, I've, I've got the resourcefulness to be able to go figure this out. Just give me a day or two. Once I realized that it's okay not to know everything, like life became so much better. <laughs> Yeah, and that, that applies to everything, not just data science. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Growth mindset. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Carol Dweck's work uh, on the growth mindset, but... No, uh, uh, but it sounds like I, I should be interested in it. <laughs> yeah, definitely check it out. I think you'll like it. It's, it's pretty much just the... If you distill it down, it's just a belief that you know, on a long enough timeline, you can figure anything out. And you just have to have that, that mentality and that um, point of view. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. So I wanted to jump in to talking about your experience being a woman in tech and if you have any advice or words of encouragement for our women in the audience who are breaking into or are currently in tech yeah definitely um so being a woman in tech means that you will most likely be one of the only women in the room a lot of the time 
unfortunately. And I think that's changing. There's definitely more women entering tech, which I am so happy about because, you know, I don't know, it's just, it doesn't make sense that it's mostly men. <laughs> um, but what that means right now, being usually one of the only women in the room, is that there's a subconscious thing that happens. If, if you're at all familiar um, with imposter syndrome, you'll know what I'm about to say, but that's that there's this subconscious, I am different than them, and they all think one way and I think a different way. And it's just, it, it's so subconscious. I, you know, before I became aware of imposter syndrome, I kind of had a really shy voice <laughs> in my, in my field. And once I started to research imposter syndrome and, and what that means, just almost being aware of it eliminated it. Um, a, I think it's really important to just be aware of that and do whatever you need to do to know that you are good enough. You are good enough. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with anyone else. <laughs> You're good enough. And uh, it's, it can almost work to your advantage as well because, it, you know, once you establish that you are different from everyone else and that's okay, then your creative ideas and the ways the creative ways that you solve problems, um, you're going to have a bigger voice for that, and you're not going to be afraid to share those ideas. Um, so I think just being aware and be gentle with yourself, and um, know that you just want to get to this place where you know that it, you know there's nothing wrong with you, <laughs> and you're good enough. Can Can you talk to us about how you kind of grappled with imposter syndrome and how you overcame that? It really. Uh, was community and that's why I created the Toronto Women's Data Group was um, I started working for this company called Figure One and they were one of those companies that was like we need a data scientist but we don't know what a data scientist does so they actually sent me to San Francisco I went to a conference there and they were also just like why don't you meet with a bunch of these different companies like you know I met with Uber I met with Lyft I met with like another healthcare tech startup and I met with all these data scientists there to try to figure out how I wanted to set up data science at Figure One. And in that process, I ended up at a meetup that was all women in data science. And it was women from like Netflix and all these other, you know, t unicorn tech startups that I, um, you know, that exist in San Francisco. And it was just like all women, all super smart and just helping each other out. And that was this moment where I was like, oh my God, I've been, you know, thinking that I'm not good enough up until this point where I'm seeing all these really powerful women and they're just like in community together. What was created there was a space where, you know, women could just be themselves, <laughs> which I think also comes with uh, imposter syndrome is feeling like you can't really be yourself. But it was all these women that were just being themselves and helping each other and problem solving and then you know i'm assuming would go back to their companies and be like oh i actually have a new perspective on this problem and this is it and blah 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 and create and then i came back to toronto and created the toronto women's data group and in that process it allowed me to get over my own imposter syndrome because i had now like noticed that it was there and then created my own community <laughs> like literally created my own community. So I had a bunch of women that were super, you know, powerful and super smart and we're all helping each other out and teaching each other. You know, I think that kind of healed my own imposter syndrome and, and I think it healed a lot of other people's as well and um, continues to do so, even though I'm not really part of the organization anymore. So what can the data community as a whole do to foster inclusion of women in data science and AI? And maybe, you know, what, what can men do to, to help foster the inclusion of women in data science and AI? Yeah, I think it's acknowledging that, um, that sometimes it can be difficult to be the only woman in the room. And for reasons that I think most men don't understand, but just knowing that imposter syndrome is a thing and creating space for opinions of women, like not just going around the table asking, or not even asking, but just like, you know, like giving time for women to state their opinions, asking them what their opinions are. Um, rather than assuming that they will interject when they have opinion. And once you do that enough times, it'll feel to that woman like, oh, my opinion does actually matter here, even though subconsciously I thought it didn't, but it actually does. So that's great. And then, you know, she'll, 
be able to interject on her own. But so there's that. There's also this like bro culture, which I'm fine to navigate around. But I think that most people, most women are, you know, find a hard time navigating around it, either thinking that they have to like become a bro to be part of this like boys club bro culture. So just being aware that bro culture is a thing and maybe minimizing it. Um, not to say that you don't can't be who you are. <laughs> um, you know, dudes want to have bro culture. That's that's cool, but make it maybe inclusive. Uh, maybe have a little bit of gal culture. Those are just a few of the things on top of mind that uh, you know some men and, and people in the community can do to help women with imposter syndrome. Last question before we jump into the lightning round here. What's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? You can create the life that you want. Uh, if data science is your thing, that's great. If you want to go into an office and work, that's great. If you want to maybe work remotely from Mexico for six months, that's also cool. And that's possible. And think about the life that you want and then work from work backwards from there. So this isn't just a data science thing. It's an all-around encompassing life thing. What is the life you want? And then work backwards from there to achieve it. And... Maybe it'll take a few weeks, maybe it'll take a few years, but I think that's one of the most important things that I could, you know, share with the community here. Uh, so let's go ahead. Let's jump into lightning round then. Uh, what is your data science superpower? <laughs> Explaining difficult concepts to people that, that aren't technical. <laughs> I'm assuming you're a bit of a foodie. I might be wrong. Totally a foodie. <laughs> so what is your most favorite dish? Vegan Indian tacos. I love making it because I love Indian food and I love Mexican food. So I usually just take whatever veggies I have lying around. I don't, I don't stick to like one type of veggie. I don't discriminate my vegetables. <laughs> and then I have a curry spice that I use, a uh, powder. And usually I'll throw in a little bit of coconut milk just because I love creamy curries. Um, and instead of butter, I use coconut oil, lots of garlic, lots of onion. So what's the most difficult recipe you've cooked up? Ooh, okay. I love to challenge myself with gluten-free and vegan baking. I don't know why I do it to myself, but every time it's so hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, anything in that category, really difficult. Yeah, that sounds like, because I think with baking, like the two essential ingredients are uh, eggs and flour. So that's... That eggs, sounds, flour, butter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so what's your favorite place to go on an adventure? India. I've been there twice. I've spent several months there and it's like going to a different planet. I just feel like I have so much personal growth every time I go. And I love the culture. I love the people. I love the freedom. Any particular part of India? My favorite place on the planet, I think, is McLeod Ganj. Um, I also really love Oroville, which is in Tamil Nadu in the south. So what's your signature dance move? Okay, I do a lot of ecstatic dance, which means there's no one dance move. It's just like moving however your body feels like moving. So even though it's not one dance move, I think that that's my signature. It's just listening to how my body wants to move and doing like a weird, like right now I'm kind of doing it where I'm like lifting one leg up in the air and then touching the ground with my left hand. <laughs> so maybe that's my signature dance move right now. So what's an academic topic outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend some time researching on? Sustainability, like anything to do with sustainability, maybe focus on one area like plastics or water and just educate yourself on that. And also what, uh, you know, different, different companies are doing to tackle those issues. What's the number one book, fiction, nonfiction, or if you want to do one of each, both, that's completely okay, uh, that you'd recommend our audience read and your most impactful takeaway from it? I'm going to go with the nonfiction, um, which I guess could also be counted as fiction, but it's a book called How to Change Your Mind. And it was so impactful for me because it was, it basically teaches you how to be happy at every moment, not happy at every moment of your life, but have your baseline be happy and how to change your minds in order to achieve that. And I think that's what everybody wants. So I think it's relevant to everyone. 
I like that a lot. So th- does that delve into like any neuroscience or anything like that about, about how to be happy or is it just kind of changing your internal dialogue and, and um, like how, how does that work? It is a little bit of, they explain a little bit of the neuroscience behind it very basic level of like, you know, if you uh, focus mindfully on one thing, this is kind of generally what happens in your brain and that's, you want that. <laughs> it doesn't go super deep into the neuroscience, but it touches on it. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely I'll include that book in the show notes and check that out myself. So if yeah. we could somehow get a magic telephone that allowed you to contact 20-year-old Lisa, what would you tell her? First, first tell us where 20-year-old Lisa was, what was she up to, uh, and then what you would tell her at that point. 20-year-old Lisa was in university. I think I was in second year at that point. I had kind of finished my party phase and I was just really intensely focusing on math and I think I was running the math and stats uh, club at that point. So if I was to call that Lisa, <laughs> I oh, I was also a super perfectionist. If I got any less than 100% on a test, I would have a nervous breakdown. So <laughs> I think I would call 20-year-old Lisa and I would say, it's okay to be wrong sometimes. And uh, there's nothing wrong with you. Everything's okay. What's the best advice you've ever received? It's what I just said. There's nothing wrong with you. And everything's going to be okay no matter what. Whatever happens in your life, in my life, anyone's life, it's okay no matter what. Even if I die, it's going to be okay no matter what. And there's nothing wrong with you. And there's nothing wrong with anyone else. We're all okay. So what motivates you? Going out on nature walks and just generally being in nature, it is like this total reset. Getting out into nature, I come back and I feel fresh. I feel motivated with life and projects. Usually I'm actually problem solving in the back of my mind when I'm on these nature walks as well. Yeah, it's definitely very common theme amongst um you know a lot of great thinkers that take some time away from your office go on a walk and just think freely um and sometimes the solutions to your problems kind of arise during that downtime i guess for lack of a better word Um, exactly and sometimes in in your sleep as well (laughs) yeah yeah what song is giving you life right now what song do you have on repeat most recently i've been listening to a lot of mac miller and there's a song called dunno which is, I don't know, it's like really kind of like cheesy and sad, but super chill. And I've listened to it so many times and I know all the words so I can listen to it while working and not be distracted. <laughs> Lisa, how could people connect with you? Where could they find you? So on my website, lisashiller.com, L-I-S-A-S-H-I-L-L-E-R. There's no C in Schiller. LisaSchiller.com. And then from there, you have all my contact information. You can read a little bit about me, shoot me an email. I would love to hear from you. Uh, Yeah, let's connect. (laughs) Lisa, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate coming on the show. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for the matter. 